Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Uh, Esau Macaulay, he's a New Testament scholar at Wheaton College. He wrote in his New York Times column this past Friday describing what Good Friday and Easter mean for black Americans. Here are his words. He says, I encountered my first corpse in middle school. My cousin Tammy, one of the most beautiful members of our family, died of complications from AIDS at the age of 28. The last time I saw her alive, lesions covered the portions of her frail frame, not draped in hospital blankets and IVs. At the funeral, I struggled to reconcile the body that lay in the coffin with the vibrant person I once knew. I sat there shocked in silence by the sights of aunties collapsing under the weight of grief. And someone said, she's in a better place. I remember thinking her dead body's lying right here in front of us. Her spirit was with Jesus, but we are more than spirits. What about the body that laughed and cried with me? Surely this too was part of my cousin. That part of her was not in a better place. It was, the, it was beginning the inevitable process of decay. It's common, even in Christian circles, to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with naked baby angels tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are more radical. And N.T. Wright, uh, he writes, Here then is the message of Easter, or at least the beginning of that message. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't mean it's all right, we're going to heaven now. No, the life of heaven has been born on this earth. It doesn't mean so there is a life after death. Well, there is, but Easter says so much more than that. It speaks of a life that is neither ghostly nor unreal, but solid and definite and practical. The Easter stories come at the end of the four Gospels, but they are not about an end. They are about a beginning. The beginning of God's new world, the beginning of the kingdom. God is now in charge on earth as it is in heaven. And God's being in charge is focused on Jesus himself being king and Lord. The title on the cross was true after all. The resurrection proves it. He's referring to the sign on the cross that read, King of the Jews. Uh, today, we gather to celebrate the most radical and foundational belief of our faith tradition, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And we're coming up on nearly, roughly two millennia ago, that a small town, houseless, working class, Middle Eastern rabbi was sentenced to capital punishment by the Roman government for crimes he didn't commit. His friends all abandoned him when he needed them most. He was then brutally and publicly mocked and tortured. And in the Middle Eastern heat, he was forced to carry a solid wood cross up 
about three miles outside the city gates to a hill. There he would be nailed to a cross alongside two criminals. And after a few hours of hanging, a Roman soldier would ensure his death by piercing his side with a spear. If he hadn't yet died from the wounds or difficulty of breathing, that ought to have done it. The law enforcement or the soldier of Rome had finished their job. Jesus was then taken down from his cross, wrapped and buried in a local tomb. But two days later is where this morning's passage picks up for this reading. Now, while this is a later writing, it's actually one of the last writings we have in the New Testament library of Scripture. John, one of Jesus' apprentices, records what happened that first Easter morning, some of which we hear he's in there. He doesn't use um, first-person pronouns, uh, but he is referring to himself in there, and we'll, we'll talk about those. They're, they're fun little personal uh, ways he refers to himself. But then others of which he has to rely on Mary of Magdala and her story, her account of what she experienced and saw. Referred to as the Apostle of the Apostles, the testimony of a first century ancient Near Eastern woman is the primary testimony that truly our entire faith depends on. And the resurrection accounts beginning with Mary, we are going to look at two points this morning. I'm going to spend like half on the reliability of the resurrection and then half on the hope of the resurrection. My intention of the first point is that those of us who may doubt the credibility of it, well, I'm hoping to at least spark your interest uh, because this is what, how I came to faith. Uh, because for us, the reality is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, throw your Bible away. It's not, don't give your life to Jesus. It's pointless. If he didn't physically rise from the dead, our faith is a waste of time. Enjoy life as we know it because why live such a difficult life? So let's look at the, reality, the reliability of the resurrection. Richard Dawkins, he's an atheist scholar from the UK. He writes, accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, Dawkins is not a uh, Bible scholar at all. He's, he's actually a geneticist. Um, but he, he's become renowned in the last couple decades for being a new popular atheist. Whether or not he has crafted the best arguments, has really been disproven, but um, he has written a well-known popular book called The God Delusion. But he is mocking us in some sense, saying that Jesus' resurrection is but a folktale. Now, is that the case? Well, I'm going to walk through, uh, there's a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. It's by two scholars named Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona. These two gentlemen walk through all the arguments and all the evidence uh, historical, philosophical, uh, contextually, and uh, it's, it's really, it, it's a pretty readable book, I would say, if you are interested in this. But here's uh, the legends, lies, or lapses they tend to uh, try and attribute to them. They try and attribute these statements as legends. First, Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, typically, 
Atheists or agnostics will say this is a legend. However, we have multiple non-Christian early century sources verifying not only that Jesus existed, that's pretty much undeniable at this point. A person who has had so much impact on human history, it is pretty ludicrous to claim that the man Jesus did not exist. Historians unequivocally acknowledge he had to have been real. But still, having died on a cross is somewhat debatable, but still most historians will accept it, especially because of the early writings. The other claim they tried to debunk is that disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so, I'm going to look at a couple of these. The opposing theories. Here's what we've got. Some will say it's a legend. Uh, that the stories were embellished over time, just as our stories can. And do you think of like your dad or mom or your grandpa that always tells stories and you're like, did you really do that? Did that really happen? You kind of stretched it, right? Think of um, walking to snow two miles uphill both ways to school type of legends, uh, just embellishing in the details. The problem, however, is that the details we have trace back to the original disciples uh, and many disciples, not just a few. Another theory that comes up is that it's simply fraud. The disciples lied and stole the body. The problem is, one, it's kind of a pointless endeavor, but two, it doesn't account for the sincerity of their belief that the conversion of Paul and James was quite radical to the point where they risked their lives and place in their society. Another example of fraud, they say, is that someone else stole the body. The problem is that this doesn't account for the appearances of Jesus. And while this writing in John's Gospel is a later first century writing, the earliest writing we have, we read a few weeks ago, is in 1 Corinthians. That's one of the earliest writings we have, and it references, Paul references, actually, an early creed dated almost a couple years after Jesus is uh, believed to have died and resurrected. And it's stating that he appeared to, and he lists all the people, he cites his sources, if you will. Another uh, claim of fraud is that they went to the wrong tomb. They must have just went to the wrong tomb. Jesus must have been buried somewhere else. Uh, the problem is, it still doesn't account for the appearances. He still appeared to hundreds of people, at least over 500, and typically in those days when we count 500, that really means probably more in the low thousands because we don't count women and children in the ancient Near East when we document data of sorts. So it doesn't account for that. It also doesn't, uh, well, the New Testament actually shows where the location is known. The other thing I'd say is, uh, the one other fraud that's pretty interesting is that he didn't really die. Now, in 1986, the, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association actually did <laughs> A report on this uh, and they basically said they proved it impossible that one scholar stated it was implausible to believe the wounded Jesus pushed the stone away with nail-pierced hands then beat up the guards walked blocks on pierced and wounded feet appeared to his disciples in his pathetic mutilated state and convinced them he was the risen Prince of life 
This also doesn't state that later on, eventually, that Jesus would still die. He would age. But I love that the Journal of American Medical Association covered that. Uh, a couple of others that were interesting, the psychological phenomena. A lot of people say, you know, hallucination or delusions. There is still, to this day, no record of any two people having the same hallucination. Us in this room, if we all, aside from the kid, you know, it's illegal for all of us, but if we all took the worst drugs, the most powerful drugs right now, we would not see the same thing in this room. No two people would trip on the same hallucination. We just wouldn't. To this day, it is not documented that that is possible. So it's a, it's a poor uh, rebuttal to our claims. A couple others, there's discrepancies in the Gospels. There are. There are discrepancies in the Gospels of minor, fairly minor details. At most, it proves that inerrancy might be problematic, but we can talk about that later. But it doesn't disprove the accounts that are written there. Even if there are discrepancies, historians discredit, would not discredit the entire event. All of our historical accounts, none of them are line for line, moment for moment, instant for instant, all facts lining up together. It's just not that case. That's what the work of a historian is, is trying to discern what is the complete truth. Two other are, they had a biased testimony. They had, they, they bought in. They drank the juice. They drank the Kool-Aid. These disciples wanted to have this be real. They were doing the whole pyramid scheme, if you will. The only thing is, they didn't make money off this. Uh, all the disciples are believed to have been, suffered horrible deaths in light of this. They risked a lot for this. And not only them, many of the early church believers of Jesus. But similarly, this also underestimates, it kind of disregards how history is written. A lot of history is written in a biased perspective. It just is. Much of our history of the world is written from a European and American perspective, yes? That's why we start, as we go into the postmodern age, we're starting to learn histories from other cultures' perspectives. That's part of learning history. But every culture has their own bias because every person in and of themselves is biased. We do have bias. But even still, it doesn't discredit the authenticity of the event. They write, recognizing the bias of an author does not automatically merit the conclusion that the author has distorted the facts. For example, Jewish historians who write about the Holocaust have reason to report what happened. This works in favor of historical accuracy. No one would discredit them simply because they are Jewish. They are simply writing, recording their history. Similar to us, the New Testament writers, if anything, had no reason to want this to be true because they knew their lives would be at risk. The last fraud allegation towards the resurrection accounts is simply naturalism. And this is a much broader category, but to be brief, essentially it narrows down to humans can't come back to life. And I would say that Christians completely agree with that in church history. We believe that you cannot come back to life on your own by natural causes. 
Scripture claims that these are supernatural causes. Naturalism looks for a natural cause. Supernatural causes are what we claim. We don't claim that, like, hey, I died, and then I just, like, in myself manifested this way of getting back to life on my own. No. It's a supernatural cause in which naturalism cannot account for, nor is it its role to account for. Now, this is a lot. These are a lot of things, and if, if you're interested in this type of stuff, if you're exploring, I encourage you, there are some great resources, and even in the lobby, we've got a couple that I would encourage you to check out, and you can feel free to take them. But these, I know personally, were big in my journey towards faith in Jesus. But still, for us, with all those, why does this matter? Why does all that matter? Some of you are like, dude, none of this matters to me. And that's true. Not everyone comes to faith because of a more the logical side. Some come more through experiential or through formational. It's true. I am one avenue, my faith story. But I am speaking to people similar to me. But also, you may know people that may reject Jesus more from a cognitive vantage point. Knowing and understanding a little bit of these details is helpful in befriending and uh, conversing with people who want more than you feel Jesus, you've seen Jesus work in your life. They want to know the head stuff. There's some of those people. Those are the questions I addressed. But why does this matter? So what if Jesus raised from the dead? Well, here's the deal. Timothy Keller writes in The Reason for God, one of the books we have out in the lobby, he writes, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what he said at all? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's the problem. And for much of my teenage years, I rejected Jesus because of teachings. Teachings, and I would say... Uh, the gospel or lack thereof gospel lived out by Christians I knew in my community. But that's not how we approach Jesus. We have to deal with the reality, the historicity of this weekend. What happened? And for us, for me, I came, the Spirit helped me come to a conclusion that I believe the most logical understanding of the historical events that happened, that transpired nearly 2,000 years ago, is that Jesus resurrected from the grave, that he eventually ascends about 40 days from this Sunday. And, um, you know, if he resurrects, he must be God. Uh, and, there, and there's a whole train of thought down there. And then because of that, it validates some of the, the library of Scripture and so on. And that's where the logic continues. But this is just an introductory argument for the reasonableness. Reasonableness? Sure, you get it of faith in Jesus and the God of resurrection. But here's why this matters in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. And why does, why does that, why does he say that? It's because our life is not this like glorious ponies and butterfly life in this life, right? It's, it's a hard journey. 
the journey of taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of putting ourselves last for God and for our neighbors. In particular, for our enemies. So yes, if we endeavor, say you live eight, ten decades, and your whole life is spent striving to live a selfless life that you do not indulge in your own desires, and there's nothing after this, yeah, you wasted it. That, that's a wasted life if there is no resurrection from the grave. But we believe this morning, we celebrate, we gather because of the, re- the reliability of the resurrection accounts, but also the hope that that reliable nature of the resurrection gives us. And that's where we're going to turn to. Our hope's not found in something unreliable. Our hope is in light of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's spend the remainder of the time. I'm going to look at the passage in John 20. It should be on the screen for you. At the hope we can now have in light of the resurrection. Oh, just prior to that, Frederick Buchner writes, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. As awful as Good Friday was, Sunday came. We're here. As awful as your Good Friday is, and maybe your Good Friday is your whole life, Sunday comes. That's the promise of the resurrection. Let's look at John's account of what happened that first Easter morning. So starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. This is key in our uh, refuting even just that our accounts are poor. For us to rely on a female witness in the first century, it's, it's not credible. It doesn't hold up for many centuries in validating and affirming something to have happened. It just didn't. Much of human history and the way we accounted for history discredited and devalued, demeaned women and their voice. They were not even allowed to witness in court, let alone say, the tomb's empty. That's why she's referred to, even as early as St. Thomas Aquinas referred to her as the first apostle, the apostle to the apostles. She went and got them. Verse 2, John writes, she ran, went to Simon Peter, and then the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I love these little things in John's gospel. He's referring to himself. John is sort of, because there's always been this little like Peter versus John rivalry going on, and Peter kind of usually has the upper hand, and John, when he records the life, he's always throwing these little things in to elevate himself above John. Love it. He's not saying his name. It's like me, the disciple Jesus loved. He's just like, you know, that one that Jesus loved. Anyways, just a fun little why. Anyways, he keeps going. Um, one Jesus loves. And he said, said to them, she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You know what? Backtrack real quick. The, that, those little details for me, those little personal um, real statements in the writings of Scripture are what helps authenticate for us that these are authentic writings, that these are not fabricated. Because why would John do this? One, why would he put right if 
if he was staking everything on this, that a female was the witness. But two, then why would he write these little things in here that are pretty personal and are pretty arrogant and kind of demean and devalue, it detracts from the story. It's like, why? These are little personal things where the, God, where the Scripture writings are both inspired, but they're also personal. It's great. Anyways, I love the Scriptures. Let's keep going. Yeah, they've taken the disciples. So, she believes at first that the body was stolen. Then, in verse 3, Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Love it. It's a foot race between Peter and John. And John's not referring to himself that I beat him. No, he's saying the other disciple beat Peter. That guy, again, love it. Very arrogant John. Uh, He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. I understand. That would probably be kind of creepy. Imagine that. There's a stone rolled away, and you see some linen, and you're like, what happened? It's kind of creepy. At first, they are not, like, worshipful. They're, they're a little cautious, approaching almost a crime scene, if you will. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Very specific details. Again, there's things like this in the Scriptures that you're just like, this is too specific to be fabricated. There's little things like this. I'm not saying this, is, this alone validates our writings, but it definitely helps affirm the reliability of them. But an interesting thing, the cloth is separated from the linen. It's rolled or folded. What is John referencing? If you recall, if you're unfamiliar, there's a story about nine chapters before in John 11 where Jesus resurrects Lazarus, one of his best friends. And when Lazarus resurrects, when he calls Jesus out of that tomb, like that song alluded to this morning, when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he comes out like mummified. He straight up has to get unwrapped. So even still, this is another argument in favor of that he resurrected, in that his body was out of the wrappings. He didn't have to be unwrapped. He would have had to, right? But no, Jesus did not need to at that point. But if the body was stolen, that would have needed to have happened. You keep going. Verse 8, Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, again, just a reminder, I was first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. Notice that John is the only one who believed at this point. Believed what? We, we don't totally know, just believed. Because at this point, they don't know of resurrection. At this point, in the ancient Near East, Jewish culture, they do not believe that there is an afterlife in this regard, that there is resurrection from the dead. It's not a a common belief at this point um, that it would happen then and now. It would happen at the end of the age, when everything's over. But in the middle? No. This wasn't a fathomable, even a a conscientious belief for them. He keeps going, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Obviously, he's writing this a couple decades later, and he's adding in his commentary, having learned and realized the resurrection and seen Jesus and been taught by him for 40 days before he ascended. And then it says the disciples returned to their homes. Kind of interesting. They don't go 
spread the news, right? Because at this point, they don't, we don't really know what they get yet. But, you keep going, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She waited. She seems like she's in unbelief, right? Like, why is she, waiting? Why is she weeping? As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them. Again, these details, all, Mary is the only person who could give this account. Again, we rely on a first century, ancient Near Eastern woman and her account. If we wanted to make this up, they would have been a, a working class, if not a benefactor, male in, yeah, some sort of Pharisee of some sort. Not this gal. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? What's going on? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Again, she still thinks, this shows us that she doesn't get it yet. She still thinks his body's been stolen. In verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. I get this picture of, you know, if you ever lost your kid at like a mall, this hasn't happened to us yet, but it probably will at some point, or Target or something like that, uh, or if you were ever lost, you know, when you hear, this happened to me as a kid actually at Disneyland a lot, and um, uh, <laughs> uh, we had passes, and, and I was the lone kid that would go, and my parents, would, I'd run ahead, and then I, I, you know, I'd lose them sometimes, we didn't have phones, and, uh, but if, if my dad said, Tyler, I could hear him through the crowd, thousands of people. You know, you just, you know that voice. And that's the picture I get here where Jesus finally addresses her by name. He calls her by name. Mary. And she turns and says to him, she realizes it, Rabbani, which means teacher. When he calls her name, she knows. When God calls us, we hear him. And perhaps you've experienced this in your own life. And perhaps looking back, you can see the hand of God intricately working in the weeks, months, years, seasons of life in your past. Maybe you're seeing it now. Maybe you don't see it, but maybe that might be how the Spirit is challenging you to look back and see God's providence in your life. Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is kind of weird. Don't hold on to me. Uh, D.A. Carson, he's a, he's a John scholar. Uh, he kind of has the big, giant John commentary. He writes, I'm not yet in the ascended state. This is what he thinks Jesus is really saying. I'm not yet in the ascended state. So you do not have to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. I'm not dipping out yet. I'm going to be around for a few weeks. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. 
That's what Carson tells us is really loaded in those Greek words. Oftentimes, words don't translate as, as perfectly. But he says, go to my brothers. Notice this. Again, Jesus sends her to be the first person in human history to preach the gospel. She's a female. It's a big deal. But then he refers to them as brothers. Big deal. Something's changed. No longer are they simply friends. He refers to them as brothers. The resurrection changed the way he related to those who were his apprentices. No longer Rabboni and teacher, but brothers. And he doesn't simply say, my father or my God. He says, my father and your father. No longer just my father, but your father. No longer just my God, but your God. The resurrection changed everything. And John wraps up, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. One other John commentator wrote, Mary Magdalene then has a remarkable role in the narrative. She's near the cross at Jesus' death. She discovers the open tomb, receives the first resurrection appearance, and as a part of this is given the commission to make the key announcement to the disciples. It is not surprising then that she has been called the apostle to the apostles. Excuse me. And with Mary, it's interesting. Some of church history has placed her as being, uh, as having a, a troubled past, as being... Um, well, the prostitute who eventually uh, washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Um, but this is not necessarily affirmed nor denied, but uh, it, it's more believed that Mary is likely more of a benefactor. Uh, she seems to have money. She, we actually know from Luke's gospel that she helped support the ministry of Jesus while they were traveling around for three years in the Middle East. And then what's interesting is after Mary does this, we don't really hear about Mary anymore. Kind of made me wonder, what happened to Mary? What happened to her in church history? But that might also tell us that for things outside of Scripture, we don't take the female account in the ancient Near East in the first century or early centuries. So why record her story? The Gospels stand out. They distinguish themselves from the other early writings. Again, this validates more and more that if we had something to hide, if this was a hoax, we wouldn't have kept her testimony in there. We would have changed her name to a man. We would have given someone else the story and made sure they memorized it. But no, Mary's story is what, her account is what helps us and has led us and given us hope to be here today, here and now, in 2022 celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. So what? Why does, why does the resurrection matter? Why does this matter to us now? Well, um, N.T. Wright writes that the resurrection declared that Jesus was not the ordinary sort of political king, a rebel leader that some had supposed he was the leader of a far larger, more radical revolution than anyone had ever supposed. 
He was inaugurating a whole new world, a new creation, a new way of being human. He was forging a way into a new cosmos, a new era, a form of existence hinted at all along, but never before unveiled. Here it is, he was saying. This is the new creation you've been waiting for. It is open for business. Come and join in. Come and join in. This is why we say that we exist to participate in God's kingdom coming here and now in Dover as it is in heaven and in our communities and culture and our world. Because the kingdom began coming in at the resurrection and it is still being ushered in here and now. Pockets of heaven invading earth. God is king, but it is still being realized. God is working. His spirit is moving. We are evidence of that. And it started with just a handful of people nearly 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern small town. And it is incomprehensible how we got here without Twitter or Facebook or anything of that sort. How did we get to billions of people at only this point in human history, let alone the billions of people throughout the last 2,000 years? From a sociological perspective, if you're more interested in that, Rodney Stark has a great book called The Rise of Christianity that discusses how there is no other probable explanation for the rise of Christianity other than that his resurrection is real. That's another great resource to check out. But what that means for us is new life is granted to us here and now. It's not just this future thing, this future hope that we're waiting for, this get-out-of-jail-free card. Now you're out of jail now. You're out of spiritual jail now. N.T. Wright continues, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is about. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It isn't your kingdom come, your will be done, wherever heaven is, just give me a ticket to get there. No, the way we were taught to pray, the only way we were taught to pray by Jesus, here and now. So why does this matter? Well, for us, practically, as Buchner said, I mean, death, because of the resurrection, death, evil, suffering, shame, does not have the last word in our lives. It doesn't. Perhaps we have, or we can, and hopefully someday, if you haven't yet, can get tastes of heaven here and now. Hopefully bigger than Costco samples, but maybe you just got the Costco sample and you're like, yes, I want in. I want to buy that product. I want to get in on the kingdom. But you can have tastes of the kingdom here and now. And some of us have. Some of us have experienced that. Some of us have experienced freedom from the shackles that have bound us for so long. Addictions, whether it be substance, sex, food, technology, some of us have been freed. Other of us, maybe not so much. We can't get a handle on it. The resurrection gives us hope that we can potentially in this life. It's not promised. 
Perhaps you're like me where in my, my addiction that I've been recovering from for, for years, that I've had for two-thirds of my life, uh, I still feel the pull to it. But then I have a brother who, man, no more. The desire's gone. That's great. I'm a little envious, like John's envious of Peter. Um, but uh, not all of us are freed from that as well. But possibly, possibly here now. But aside from that, the resurrection guarantees that that will no longer have a grip on me at some point. And you too. If these things don't now, or they will not at some point, taste as good as they used to. Because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've gotten a drink of the water. You've gotten a taste of the bread of life. Similarly, relational strife, marriage, family, work, friends, these things, they don't have to have a grip on us. There can be healing, redemption. Sometimes there's not. Again, pockets of heaven. Heaven isn't completely here, but there are pockets of it. Some of us have lived in it and seen it. And some of us, we work and pray towards it. That is our role. Work and pray towards the kingdom coming here and now on earth as it is in heaven. Similarly, shame, abuse, trauma, anything of these sorts, these don't define us anymore. And we might still live with the trauma of it, the shame of it, working through it. But the resurrection promises, it's the one thing we have in this life that promises wholeness, restoration. And even, dare I say, meaning in it. Do I know exactly what it is? No. But without it, man, it makes sense why we struggle to live this life. It makes sense why depression, anxiety, suicide can be so high because without the resurrection, what hope is there in life? This is what gives us hope to keep going. This is what gives us hope that there is more, that death and evil do not have the last say. That's why the writers in the Scriptures write, death, where is your sting? It no longer has the power. It no longer has the grip on me. I'm going to invite the band up, and we're actually going to sing one song, uh, or a couple songs, but one of which, in Christ alone, one of the lines... Um, discusses that. It proclaims that. That it has no hold on me anymore since curse has lost its grip on me. Maybe you feel that it still has its grip on you. Whether it be you still feel drawn towards that or you still feel the shame and burdens and shackles of it. All I can say is the God of resurrection is worth putting your hope in. The God of resurrection gives us the promise of new life. We now exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming here as it is in heaven. We are to pray for and work towards that wholeness, that restoration, that kingdom coming here and now. As we uh, transition
to a time of responsive worship. We do uh, just a couple things in this time, predominantly sing, but I do encourage you, um, I like to reflect in this time as well and hear the words and, and consider what maybe the Spirit is speaking to me in this time over His Word. And if you need to confess to God in prayer, I encourage you to pray, prayerfully confess to Him. We invite you, if, if Life Bridge is your home church, to sacrificially give, and we encourage you to joyfully or perhaps sorrowfully sing out. Regardless, the Psalms are filled with both. God, whether in the joy or the sorrow, is worthy of our praise, now and always. Let's sing together. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.